Now, you know, there's a great irony about the laws of war. Under the laws of war, if you're following the laws of war, you can kill somebody. It's morally awful. It's a personal tragedy, but it's not illegal. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Chris Park, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amanda and Indy. Sets of rules, norms, and standards that make up international law provide a broad framework for actions of countries around the world. It also has a profound effect on our daily lives, governing, for example, how we travel or how we send or receive money from abroad. On this podcast, we discuss how international law is enforced, how it affects American foreign policy decisions such as drone strikes, and whether it can be used as a tool to address transnational issues like climate change. Joining us today to discuss international law and its role in global governance is Professor Harold Hongju Ko. Harold Hongju Ko is Sterling Professor of International Law at Yale Law School. He first began teaching at Yale Law School in 1985 and served as its 15th dean from 2004 to 2009. From 1998 to 2001, he served as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. He served from 2009 to 2013 as the 22nd legal advisor for the U.S. Department of State, a service for which he received the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award. Professor Coe has received 17 honorary degrees and more than 30 awards for his human rights work. He has authored and co-authored eight books, published more than 200 articles, testified regularly before Congress, and litigated numerous international law cases in both the U.S. and international tribunals. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Professor, for coming on the podcast today. Um, so to introduce this episode, we kind of wanted to cover, you know, the basis of what this podcast will be about. So what exactly is international law and what are some of the different facets of it? Well, international law both um, constrains uh, action by nation states in the global arena, but it also facilitates action because when nations are cooperating within a framework of international law, uh, they're able to rely on each other and engage in cooperative behavior. Um, so international law has been around for uh, really since the, the um, beginning of um, civilization. Uh, it's been written about since the Romans in the 900s, and um, uh, it's been a feature of uh, ecclesiastical work. Um, the law of the sea has been around since uh, the 1100s. Uh, but we have a more sophisticated system now that's emerged since um, World War II and the creation of the United Nations system, the Bretton Woods system. Uh, obviously, it's imperfect, it's under-enforced, uh, but uh, we couldn't live without it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned how international law has a constraining effect on nation states' behavior, and you talked about how it's under-enforced. So how, even, even if it's under-enforced, what are some of the enforcement mechanisms of international law, law that exists today? Well, uh, Chris, if you don't mind, let, let me go back and give some examples about how international law makes our life possible in a way that we don't appreciate. You know, when I was in college, uh, which is a while back, uh, if I flew to uh, Europe uh, on vacation, I, I had to, um, uh, if, if I got there, if my luggage uh, were uh, missing, uh, I had no way to get it back. Um, I had to carry traveler's checks 
if I landed in Paris and I wanted to go to Italy, I'd have to use a passport to get across. Um, uh, everything was difficult. Now you can fly your uh, luggage is protected by the Warsaw Convention. Uh, if it's lost, uh, they're required to give you payment when you land. You can go to an ATM machine where money transfers are facilitated by international law. Um, your passport allows you to move in the Schengen area without restriction. You save uh, incredible amounts of time and uh, hassle. Uh, just because of the creation of these international law arrangements. So people don't understand this. Uh, they think of this as some sort of attack on our sovereignty. In fact, it's a dramatic expansion of our freedom because of this level of cooperation. But are there instances where international law does interfere with sovereignty and restrict you know, a nation's uh, you know, sovereign rights to you know, enact its own policies and uh, you know, carry out uh, you know, its intended policies, uh, and perhaps that could con conflict with international law? Well, you know, most international law and treaties are like contracts, and we all enter contracts all the time. Um, and contracts restrain our freedom. So you guys um, signed up to go to Johns Hopkins. Uh, when you made that commitment, you agreed you weren't going somewhere else. But that opens the door for your full part participation in the life of a great university. So you surrender something and you get something. Um, that's the idea is that, uh, and, and others, if you said, I, I don't want to go to Johns Hopkins and I don't want to sign a contract to go to Johns Hopkins because it's going to impinge on my freedom. Uh, that includes your freedom um, to go to Johns Hopkins. <laughs> you, 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 you can't do it unless you bind yourself in that way. And I, I think that's the most important thing for people to realize. Um, a, a, um, um, I, I think it's a you know, very narrow notion that um, we are somehow living on an island where we're not connected to the rest of the world. I mean, most of the transactions you engage in every day go through an international system. And so for that to be facilitated, it has to be done consistently or through the processes of international law. And uh, we just accept that as part of getting the access to it. You know, to, get, to get to the internet, um, we all have to click on uh, you know, Zoom consent arrangements, et cetera. And that, that's what allows us to get access to these communication mechanisms that didn't exist years ago. So you briefly mentioned uh, the United Nations and the Bretton Woods Agreement a little bit earlier. Um, so I just want to expand a little bit and clarify um, the role of the United Nations in the formation and the enforcement, which a lot of, a lot of criticism of the United Nations is that there is no enforcement, um, what that, um, has, that role that the United Nations has in international law, and additionally, what other international bodies are relevant in discussing international law. Well, again, India, I think this is an um, exaggeration. Um, are, are cars stolen in the city of Baltimore? Yeah. <laughs> does that mean there's no law or enforcement in Baltimore? Not so at all. Ev everywhere you go, law is imperfectly enforced. It's under-enforced. But it's what sets expectations um, for uh, your behavior. Um, law constrains and thereby frees you. Um, you know, at, at Harvard University, when 
students graduate they and get a law degree they said the the wise restraints that make us free that's a good description of what law is um so uh just think back to uh the early uh 20th uh, uh century where uh, we had a number of traumatic events one was the great depression and then the other was world war one and world war two so they decided to set up um, a Bretton Woods system that would prevent there from being more depressions. And they set up the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the International Trade Organization, which has now become the WTO. And then they said uh, their other concern was about the scourge of war and the absence of human rights protection. And they set up a United Nations system and, um, at San Francisco. Um, and that's been the basis for most international organizations and many treaties uh, in the nearly 80 years since. So is that a perfect structure? Obviously not. Uh, no human-made system is. But are we better off with it or without it? I think there's no doubt that we're better off with it. So I want to go back a little bit or move forward in kind of a different direction and talk about um, American perspectives on international law. So obviously, like you said, um, treaties are like contracts. So obviously, America is engaged in lots of treaties with lots of different countries, lots of other commitments. But I'm curious, what are some of the core commitments um, America has to international law? Uh, so first of all, remember that the Declaration of Independence um, said, uh, uh, paying a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, we explain why we're seeking our independence. Uh, as a new nation, we appealed to international law as a way of legitimating what we were doing. And what we were saying was essentially, if a colonial monarchy, namely Great Britain, was denying us representation and human rights, we were entitled to break away in the name of self-determination. And that's what we just celebrated on July 4th. So um, this is traditionally the case, uh, Amanda, which is that we, uh, new nations usually invoke international law as a way of legitimating themselves and um, uh, proving that they're, they're now unequal in the world of sovereign nation states, of which there are now 196. So you just take a look at the the. Uh, founding documents of some of the newest countries in the world, you know, South Sudan, Timor-Leste, they say the exact same things that we say, um, that we said in 1776. Now, what happened is, what happens when a nation becomes extremely powerful and rich, uh, there's a tendency to say, well, uh, we're exceptional, and we don't have to play by these rules. And uh, there's a tension. You know, the United States is exceptional in a good way and in a bad way. The United States has been exceptional in its leadership of this system. Uh, and it's been, uh, at times, exceptional in demanding uh, exemptions from the system, uh, which is what happened, I think, during the Trump era. And uh, what happened there, and we saw it pretty graphically, was a great loss of respect for the United States, uh, a loss of leadership capacity, uh, a reduction in our ability to influence uh, the world, and most fundamentally, a lack of a cooperative attack on some of the world's global problems. I mean, just think about what happened 
the Trump administration withdrew from the World Health Organization during a global pandemic, which no nation can solve by itself. It's really hard to imagine a more counterproductive move, except for <laughs> withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement at a moment when climate change has really uh, come on to everyone's consciousness as one of the great threats of existential threats of our time, which is something that your generation, I think, very viscerally understands. And, um, you know, so if you don't have a cooperative solution, you don't have a solution. And the idea that America first is able to solve that problem really means America alone. And um, so what the Biden-Harris administration has been trying to do in its first six months is to try to reverse that damage to get back into this system and then try to lead uh, a new cooperative approach to these global problems. Right. And you discuss in your book that you released in 2018 called The Trump Administration and International Law, um, you discuss a couple different foreign policy decisions the Trump administration made, such as uh, the Muslim travel ban, the decision to exit the Paris Climate Accords, and several other foreign policy decisions that were made by the Trump administration. And you look at these decisions through the lens of international law. So how has the Trump administration been um, constrained by international law in your view? Well, um, we're, we're now back in Paris. We're now back in the World Health Organization. Um, we're running to be reelected to the Human Rights Council where we stopped declaring war on the International Criminal Court. We're renegotiating entry to the Iran nuclear deal. So these were setbacks, uh, more precisely self-inflicted wounds. Um, so instead of advancing, we went backwards, but I think we've been in the process of repairing them. But I think uh, what is troublesome is whether our allies think of the United States as a reliable partner. Um, our politics is so broken, it's disturbing the thought that every four years or every eight years, you might have a 180 degree shift. But the, the book, which you kindly mentioned, argued that these legal rules are more deeply ingrained in our consciousness, that there is bureaucratic resistance um, to this, that, that pe people just won't turn around and abandon the rule of law. Um, it's very uh, central to who we are as Americans. I mean, the four of us here, you know, we're, we're from different uh, ethnic heritages. Uh, some of us are different races. What makes us Americans is this idea that we, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all persons are created equal and uh, um, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that we are subject to a constitution of laws and not individuals. And that is the binding credo of the country. And um, anyone who then attacks that credo is really attacking the core notion of what it means to be an American in the world. So you've, um, we've looked at different, some of the different facets of international law, some of core tenets of uh, how both the United States, um, uh, how the United States functions within the framework of international law and the global system. So I kind of want to take a different page um, into looking at, you know, the daily kind of mechanics of how international law is interpreted and followed in the United States, which brings me to the question, you know, 
you served as the uh, the legal advisor to the State Department during the Obama administration under Secretary Clinton. And um, so what does this role entail and how does that role affect foreign policy of our country? Well, you know, what, what you do is you, you try to facilitate the um, uh, compliance of the United States with the international law system. And um, that means uh, trying to make sure that everything we do is, is uh, consistent with our international commitments. You know, so uh, take, take, for example, a, a topic we were discussing earlier today, uh, which is uh, artificial intelligence and the use of weapons. Now, obviously, as you all know from watching however many Terminator movies, <laughs> uh, we, we are well on the way to developing autonomous weapons. Uh, and then the question is how to make sure that those weapons follow the Geneva Conventions. Um, you know, you can't target civilians, you can't target people who are wounded, and uh, they, they have to be uh, uh, programmed and guided in such a way that they obey the international laws of war. Um, you know, if we torture people, our soldiers will be tortured in return. You know, if, if we... Um, uh, violate these international rules, other nations will violate those rules. Now, the greatest problem is that uh, technology is moving faster than the law. So, for example, most uh, international uh, uh, violence uh, is now being committed by cyber attacks. Um, you know, and you saw, for example, President Biden the other day called on Putin to stop the use of ransomware. You know, uh, in 1949, when they had the Geneva Convention, nobody even heard of ransomware, much less computers, <laughs> much less um, uh, use of uh, cyber conflict as a way of carrying out ends. But notice that the, the consequence is the same. You know, you could bomb a hospital or you could shut it down with a cyber command. And so those cyber commands have to be subject to the same kinds of rules. So we're, we're constantly having to innovate and update our international legal rules to address today's problems. You mentioned these new developing 21st century technology, these new tools of violence that states are able to wield and uh, given uh, any military conflict uh, today. And I kind of want to delve more into the specifics of how international law kind of plays into this framework. You know, for example, you know, drone strikes have been, you know, an essential part of American counterterrorism strategy. Um, and they also have been one of the most contentious foreign policy issues uh, in, the, uh, in the past decade or so. The Trump administration used precision airstrikes frequently, you know, notably killing Qasem Soleimani. Uh, right before the end of his term, President Biden so far directed uh, two, uh, uh, you know, precision airstrikes since taking office. So can you kind of run through kind of the specific kind of, I guess, more uh, uh, the detailed mechanisms, how international law is used to justify and, uh, you know, support these decisions made by the president? Uh, so, you know, these technological advances are part of every era, um, you know, the last time I was in the government, in the Obama administration, drones were being developed. Now more of the focus is on cyber conflict, ransomware, that kind of tool. But, um, you know, there's nothing unusual about this. These are means to conducting conflict. So if you think back on it, 
um, you know, since the history of conflict used to be hand-to-hand combat. And over time, uh, the focus has been much more on remote weapons, um, you know, precision targeted. And that includes, um, you know, catapults, uh, you know, spears, uh, but then on to guided missiles. Um, and then now on to these, uh, uh, you know, unarmed, I'm sorry, unmanned uh, armed vehicles. So these are tools. Uh, they're not um, the end, they're a means. And the question is how to make sure that these tools are used lawfully. Now, you know, there's a great irony about the laws of war. Um, under the laws of war, if you're following the laws of war, you, you can kill somebody. Uh, you know, if you declare war on somebody or they declare war on you and you confront another combatant in the battlefield and you kill them, it's legal. It's morally awful. It's a personal tragedy, but it's not illegal. And so one of the roles of someone who's a legal advisor is to draw the line between lawful and unlawful uses of force. You know, if the United States engages in an unlawful use of force and I'm one of the lawyers, then I'm culpable for having countenanced an illegal act. And I took an oath to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States of America. That, that's the only basis under which I serve. You know, notice I, I've never taken an oath to serve Joe Biden or before Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or anybody else. My, my oath is to serve the Constitution and laws of the United States. So, um, you know, I, I personally do not agree with the Soleimani strike. Um, I think that nobody authorized a strike on a, a senior Iranian military official, which could have plunged us into war with Iran. Um, but I think that the um, strikes that the Biden administration has taken have been limited, necessary, and proportionate in self-defense. You know, the most recent one came about because of the escalating use of drones against American soldiers. And so the effort was to try to deter that and cause them to de-escalate by hitting um, uh, facilities that had drones in them. And uh, the idea is they don't have the drones, they can't escalate that way. And I, I think the general view of this has been that this is lawful under domestic and international law, and that's, that's my view as well. Great. So I want to switch us to a slightly different topic, which is something else besides drone strikes that has been in the news a lot is um, refugee rights, asylees, um, just migration issues generally. And immigration, of course, is a huge domestic policy point that President Trump made during his um, tenure in office and has kind of come back into light during the Biden administration. So what commitments to international law does the U.S. abide by with regards to refugees and asylees? Well, you know, there's a 1951 Refugee Convention. There's a 1967 protocol that implements the Refugee Convention. And its main provision is you're not allowed to return somebody to their persecutors. So if someone escapes their country and is fleeing, um, you can't return them there. And... Um, uh, we also now have a lot of international law discussion about people who are displaced persons, namely they haven't crossed the border 
to be a refugee, you have to cross a border, but there are many people who are displaced within their own country. You know, look at Syria, for example. Um, you know, the Trump administration, by the way, the United States obviously is a nation of refugees. Uh, that's why I live in America. My parents came here and, and sought political asylum. And, um, you know, uh, I was born here and I became an American citizen and I got a chance to serve my government on multiple occasions, for which I'm very grateful. Um, the Biden administration has raised the refugee ceiling and has uh, tried, you know, reversed the Muslim ban and has tried to uh, be much more generous and open to refugees. Uh, a complication in all of that, obviously, is that the pandemic hasn't abated uh, to the extent that we'd like. And so there are still travel restrictions in place. But these are not restrictions based on religion uh, or ethnicity. They're restrictions based on public health. And when the public health problem subsides, um, those restrictions will be lifted, I'm sure. And just kind of my last question on this topic. So American immigration policy is something that significantly changes between presidential administrations. Um, so I'm just curious, like, to what extent are certain protections always guaranteed? Obviously, there might be exceptional circumstances like the pandemic, right, that you were just talking about, a public health crisis. Um, but like, to what extent are certain global migration and immigration laws or protected or covered by international law and like will remain preserved no matter a change in political party uh, leading the U.S.? Well, you know, we're a big country. We have many states that are very underpopulated. Um, we have a very high capacity to take people in. And we've been populated because we took people in. And, um, you know, many of the refugees who are, would would be proposed to to come would would not many would be received by family members or community groups who are supportive so our absorptive capacity is a lot higher I, I think what happened during the Trump administration was frankly uh, looking to blame someone for our problems and the other or aliens uh, are a good scapegoat and uh, the administration wound people up by by using them as scapegoats. Uh, they, you know, didn't have a clear explanation for why. You know, for example, in the Muslim ban was imposed against people from a number of countries based on their supposed connections to terrorism. Uh, in fact, if you looked at those countries, not a single one of them uh, had there ever been a terrorist who had committed a lethal act in the United States who was of, of that uh, nationality. So, um, you know, there was no connection between the claimed counterterrorism aim and the immigration restriction. And then, you know, building the wall uh, was one of the more extraordinary wastes of money you can imagine. Um, you know, the, the wall <laughs> um, was both... Uh, ineffective and also symbolically disastrous. You know, we, we tore down a wall in Berlin and for us to be erecting one, and then, you know, it's not as if the wall worked. Uh, you know, anyone who's been down there knows that people could circumvent the wall or come some other way. So, you know, what, 
what is that as a, a way of trying to send a message? Even if you're interested in border control, uh, there are lots of ways you can do it uh, other than through a physical wall. So again, that was something that was sort of um, a good item to shout at a rally, um, saying you're going to build a wall. And by the way, Mexico didn't pay for it. <laughs> we paid for it. And um, if you look, what ended up happening, Congress blocked it. And therefore, it was paid out of um, military, U.S. military expenditures. And among the other things is that, you know, military daycares were defunded and other kinds of things for the purpose of uh, having this ineffective um, wall. Um, so happily, the construction on that wall has stopped, and we focused on more meaningful immigration control measures under this administration. Um, so I want to bring us to our last topic today, um, and one that has pretty big implications for the future of the globe. So thinking, looking into the future, how can international law be a tool to address transnational issues like climate change, which is something that has been on a lot of people's minds? as a pressing issue looking into the future? Well, the, the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015 was a landmark uh, idea, and mostly because of a very simple approach. It was a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. And the idea was that each country would make a commitment to reduce its carbon emissions by X amount and then if you add up all the commitments from the bottom up, you try to get to a two degree reduction in uh, world temperature, which uh, it may be not enough to um, save all the low lying islands, but it's an important beginning. Now I think the ambition that uh, Secretary John Kerry, former Secretary of State, who's now the special envoy for the Biden administration is pursuing, is net uh, zero emissions by 2050. Um, now, that obviously involves, th this cannot be done without international law. Uh, the largest emitters have to agree, the United States, China, India, um, and they have to agree on a common target. And there's a group called the High Ambition Coalition which is obviously pushing for even more. Uh, my son, who's a little older than you guys, uh, went to the island of Kiribati in uh, the uh, Pacific Ocean, and it's sinking into the ocean. Um, and the impact on Kiribati has been dramatic. Um, not just the fact that the land is disappearing, but everything's polluted. Um, they used to have coral reefs, and so they used to have fish. But as the coral reefs have disappeared, the fish have disappeared, so they have to import all their food, and they've imported unhealthy Western foods like you know, Coca-Cola and Spam. And the people's health has dramatically declined as a result. That's what he was testing. He's a recent graduate of the Harvard School of Public Health. And it got to the point where the prime minister of Kiribati actually went to the neighboring country of Fiji and bought an island where all the residents of Kiribati could move. But the uh, next prime minister canceled the deal. 
So again, it shows that the issue of climate, which should be a common problem addressed through science and then cooperation to address that issue has been afflicted by politics, uh, which has made it difficult to mobilize a concerted attack on the problem. And the exact same issue is going on with regard to uh, COVID. You know, we, we certainly have enough vaccines to vaccinate everybody in the country. But um, we're in this extremely awkward position where some states of the union, because of resistance to vaccinations, um, we're having a flare-up uh, with the variants coming in. And um, this is a matter of people being advised, um, really falsely advised by uh, political people with a political agenda. So um, Hopkins has played a phenomenal role in just getting out the information and numbers on COVID. It's been one of the absolute leaders on this issue. So you should all feel proud of your university on that regard. But, you know, the science alone is not enough. Uh, you need a cooperative framework. So among the things that have been under discussion is should there be a new pandemic instrument or treaty? Secondly, should there be amendments to the international health regulations, which clearly failed during the COVID-19 pandemic crisis? You know, it shouldn't be that a country where there's been uh, an outbreak uh, creating a public health emergency can just block people from coming in or hide the origins of it. All of these things are issues to be addressed by uh, international law frameworks. So this is part of the absolutely critical role that international law is going to play going forward. Um, maybe I can say one more thing. Um, I, I think you know enough about life to know that life is not about transactions. Um, it's about relationships. Um, you know, transactions only get you so far. And the way that you build sustained approaches to any problem is to build relationships uh, and have those relationships uh, build alliances that collectively attack problems. Uh, the problem with the Trump approach to foreign policy was it was entirely transactional. It was a series of one-offs. There was no strategy involved. And these transactions were largely directed against existing relationships. And um, what the Biden administration is trying to do is the opposite, which is to build these relationships, build that trust, and then rebuild the legal frameworks and thereby rebuild institutions and rebuild our capacity to attract, attack these global problems. And you know that's what I've been trying to do in my time in the government. It's been uh, challenging, but exciting. Well, thank you so much, Professor Koh, for joining us today. <laughs> my pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.